you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we continue a study in 1 Peter that we're calling Living Hope. We'll look at another reason to be hopeful today. And as you're turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, let me start with a question to stir your minds to think about something that will come up in the Scripture this morning. Have you ever had anyone say some really hurtful things about you? You find out through the grapevine or it echoes back to you or someone says it right to your face. Things that just weigh heavy on you because they're calling into question your character or something that you did or something that you believe in and, and there's a person that's just speaking against you and hopefully uh, your mind is stirring. Maybe you thought of something that happened this morning. Um, maybe you haven't thought of anything at all and if that's you, you're probably lying to yourself or you're blissfully unaware because we live in a time that is hypercritical. And all of us have probably gone through some season where our lives just felt like they were under the microscope. I was at dinner with my wife two weeks ago. It was our anniversary. And we were at one of those restaurants downtown uh, that requires you to sit like shoulder to shoulder with the people next to you. Once again, uh, another indicator that our city is growing. This is a very urban style to eat, I suppose. And at one point, my wife gets up to use the restroom, and I was forced to eavesdrop to the couple right next to me. I had no choice. And we were having a great conversation, me listening and them talking. And... I overheard them talking about their daughter who had just recently moved away to college and uh, this person that she had met, a, a young man that quickly became someone she showed interest in and they started dating and they uh, at first sounded very excited. He was uh, seemingly a good student with great career aspirations. Uh, they would look at the photos and they, it seemed like they were both happy. And then the conversation shifted, took a darker turn with the most recent update of this young man's college journey. Uh, he had started attending one of those uh, campus ministries, and he got very enthusiastic, and the most recent photo that the daughter had sent was of this young man's baptism. And they gasped because he had converted to Christianity. And they were really, really concerned, mind you. Uh, they talked about how they raised their daughter to be open-minded and non-religious, and now she was interested in a religious fanatic, an extremist. And the conversation actually turned towards all of the things they were worried about, how he was narrow-minded, uh, how he could maybe manipulate her to start thinking the same ways, and they were actively brainstorming and plotting against this young man to talk to their daughter about some good reasons why maybe she shouldn't be around this guy. Welcome to the Christian standing in our modern culture. 
you know, no one, we all sense it's not good to talk evil about people, but typically there's one class that can become the exception to the rule for every society. And if you don't know what that group is, it's you. Uh, we live in a time where it is becoming less and less and less popular to bear the name of Christ. And the good news is, this is actually not a surprise to God. This is not some uh, breaking news that for 2,000 years of church history, uh, believers and followers of Jesus were welcomed by the outside world and they got great PR and ribbon cuttings wherever they went. Uh, in fact, what we'll study today, the reason we start with a thought-provoking idea like this, is because Peter is now going to shift the tenor of his letter, not just on all of the reasons they have to have living hope, but now to get nitty-gritty as to why they're going through some of the various trials they are. And the first one he's going to talk about is that they are people who are not welcomed in society. They're people who don't fit in, and they're people now that actually have a bad reputation as citizens in the places that they live. But the good news is that he addresses it. He understands this is the reality of their life, and he speaks to them, and he can speak to us as a way to live in response with hope still. So we're going to consider that as we look at these two verses today. It's one sentence in Peter's letter broken down into two verses where he is going to offer the hopeful solution to the slander of the world. It starts in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. When, not if, they speak against you as evildoers, here is how you are to behave. Let's take a minute before we get into Peter's solution for the tension to just try to understand the context that Peter was writing into. Why is it that people in the first century who had decided to follow Christ and put their faith in him were now gaining a bad reputation in their citizenship in what was the first century Roman Empire? So here's a couple things that were happening around this time. Uh, many people looked on the outside looking into the first century church and thought of them as treasonous. Mainly because it was common practice to bend your knee and call Caesar Lord. And the believers said, well, Caesar isn't actually Lord. We believe in the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. That's Christ Jesus. So we're not going to bend the knee to the emperor. So now they have a reputation as being people who were seditious or treasonous. Uh, the reputations get a little bit more flavorful because of some of the ways they would gather and the reputation of their gathering is that they'd all get together and they'd open God's word and at the very end they would hold up the body and the blood of Christ. 
And the outside world looking in claimed they were cannibals for that. They actually thought they were in some way honoring Christ by eating real bodies and real blood. And so they gained this weird cultish reputation as cannibals. And from that same gathering, it was the, the, the common reputation is that these early believers called each other brother and sister and talked about how much they loved each other. And so the slander and evil speak against them was that they were treasonous, cannibalistic, incestual cults that were popping up all over the Roman Empire. And maybe the worst claim and the most laughable claim is that they were also atheists. Because in, in the pantheon of the Roman gods, the believers and the Christians and the Christ followers said that they don't honor any of the gods except the living God. And so the Romans were like, you're going, to be, you're going to cause wrath to befall the kingdom if you don't honor all of the pagan deities. And modern people can look back at all of those claims, the evil words, the evil speaking that was happening against the Christians, and we can laugh it off. We know today, and most common people know, that Christians don't actually eat real human flesh. And we, when we say brother and sister, we're referring to the family of God. And by all accounts, we're the least atheistic of anyone in our culture. So all of those words now fall flat, but there are now modern accusations. There are new ways that you, who bear the name of Christ, and practice what you are practicing right now in this current gathering, will leave here and have people look at you strangely. Right now we preach from a word that we call the living word of God, and we take it as authoritative. And in this word of God, our Savior says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except by him. And the outside pluralistic culture says, you guys are the most narrow-minded bunch of everyone. We also, in our gathering, will not only edify each other in ways to be righteous, but we also call each other to repentance in ways to remove unrighteousness from our life. We take the word of God seriously when it calls evil, evil, and sin, sin, and we call people to repentance. And for that reason, you will all be labeled judgmental. Because there's all sorts of things that the Bible, the enduring word of God that is eternal, it is for our time and all times, will contradict what is accepted and normal of the culture. And when you stand on the word of God, you stand against the, the culture's acceptance and you are being judgmental. You can be labeled anti-science because our living hope is rooted in a man who rose again from the grave. One of the, it is the chief miracle by which all other miracles flow. But today we believe in the miraculous power of God that defies the laws of science. You, in fact, are practicing some form of anti-science by praising the God of resurrection. And maybe the, the least favorite of mine is that we are also labeled anti-fun. What do you mean you're anti-fun? We like... We do VBS. That's very fun. Uh, here's a, a letter to a Christian that will maybe hit a little bit harder because what the word is calling you to acknowledge today is that you will not be liked. 
There must be a point in the preaching of this word where you must acknowledge that the outside world doesn't like you and they're going to say it out loud. So read along with me. Dear Christian, you are, into- you are intolerant racist bigots who are on the wrong side of history. Intolerant because you won't blur the line of good and evil. Bigots because you won't blur the line of identity and reality. Racist because you value the content of character more than the color of skin. You're on the wrong side of history because you won't accept that two plus two sometimes does in fact equal five. And so we live in a time where all of these claims, as inaccurate as they are, they are just as inaccurate as the claims against the church in the first century that Peter was writing to then, and yet they land a little bit harder now because they're happening all around us wherever we go. And I don't have to list all of the things that you may experience as a believer if you have ever stood real life in the real world, on the Word of God, you should have experienced someone at some time telling you why you're wrong. And oftentimes, in their disputes, it will be a character assassination. Evil speaking is a fact of reality for anyone who follows Christ because it is how they treated him and you are not greater than the Master. So Peter's going to offer some solutions. In these two verses, you have fundamental bedrock truths to stand on so that you don't only survive a character assassination, but you actually use it for the glory of God. Uh, These are truths that will be true whether you're a Christian or not. This is, in fact, how you deal with people who disagree with the way you live your life. And in the verses we read, you saw the foundational truths in who you are and how you live. Every attack on your character is calling into question who you actually are and what you do with the actions of your life. And they come in that order because how you behave is always downstream from what you believe. you got to know what you believe so that when the evil speaking that is done against you attacks your character, you can very quickly decide if it's true or not. I was, as I was preparing this, one of my daughters came running up to me with tears in her eyes And I said, what's wrong? And she said, one of my sisters, who will remain unnamed, said, one of my sisters said, I'm in a coma. (laughs) And I said, well, are (laughs) you? And she said, no, I'm not. But she's still saying it, and she won't stop. And I said, listen, you're not in a coma. Now go live your life. (laughs) That's the reality. Once you know what is true, you can live beyond evil accusations. But you got to know who you are. And throughout the letter that Peter is writing to these believers, who he's encouraging with hope and also giving practical life wisdom for real life difficulty, the whole thing is covered with identity. Here's who you are. This is who you are. In the verse that we read, we start with the very first bedrock of your identity in Christ. Verse 11 says, Beloved. One of the hardest things about living in such a hypercritical time is that whenever anyone speaks against you, it is violating a fundamental desire that we all have for acceptance. And we all have to live in this world where it's so easy to live in the culture of approval. 
It's just common that all of you have probably posted something online and immediately someone has the ability to like it, love it, hate it, comment, and tell you everything they think about who you are. If you've ever gone to school, you had to live through getting back your grades and all the comments and all the worry that that uh, simple definition of how you performed in school would define your life. You're seeking for approval because you don't want to not belong. If you own a business, you have to deal with Yelp. And if you go to church, you have to deal with non-believers. And in all of those things, they're calling into question at the very fundamental essence, are you really loved? Do people really like you? And for Peter, before he gets into any practical strategy for how to live in a world of non-believers that speak against you, he says, beloved. He writes two letters as an apostle. And in those two short letters, he uses the word beloved eight times. And every time he uses the word beloved, he is using it as a counterweight to a difficult reality that he is pastoring people through. You think of 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised when you go through fiery trials of various kinds. Before we talk about the reality of difficulty, once again, I'm going to tell you you're standing in the eyes of God. You are loved. You are accepted, not of your own good works, but of the grace of God who has won you into his family because he loves you. In his second letter, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day as he speaks to them about their longing for the promises of God to come true. As they wait for the return of Christ, as they long for their standing to be made right, he says, listen, beloved, be patient. God holds time in his hand. A day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. He will not be slack to fulfill his promise, but as you wait, know that you're loved. A few weeks ago, my oldest daughter had her first real world playground example of evil speaking that was rated R. So this is beyond your normal you know, kids being mean to each other. She actually got called a word that I can't repeat in church, so you'll have to talk to me after. <laughs> and she came home crying, and she expressed what happened, and what she ultimately needed was to be held in her mother's arms as a counterweight to the negative feeling she was experiencing for something that wasn't true. Welcome to the counterweight. This is what we do when we gather every single week. We gather not simply to grow in the knowledge of who God is, not simply to know more about his word, not simply to execute a better strategy for reaching the lost and edifying the saints. We come week by week by week to be bathed in the love of God once again as the security blanket for all who believe. The fundamental purpose for you to experience when you gather with the saints is the first and greatest commandment that God loves you and you're supposed to love him in return. Until that is checked off your list of why you come here, don't worry about becoming a missionary. 
Beloved is who you are. Beloved is also the one-word summary of the entire sermon from last week. If you were here last week, you know Pastor Kirk taught on this amazing position that Peter wanted every believer to know. The living stones, the holy temple of God, called into his marvelous light to declare his goodness. It was Peter's final emphasis on their amazing standing with God before he gets nitty-gritty with how to live in a tense world. And you think about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, by way of review, all of the ways that he wanted people to know their standing in the love of God. I'll read them to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are his own special people. You are loved by God. It is the counterweight that makes every evil spoken against you seem like a grain of sand on the balance. You're beloved. And now you have, with that in place, you have a second reminder of your identity that we've already talked about because it comes up throughout the letter. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as... Sojourners and pilgrims. Peter reminding these churches who were scattered abroad from persecution into a dispersion that where they live is not their home. A sojourner is a temporary resident. Our introduction to the letter was categorized by God's elect and the world's exile. You are beloved, but you don't belong. Wherever you are, you are just passing through. One of the ways you can practically see this, if you heard our announcement about going to Israel, uh, we just went on a trip to Israel, and one of the, the great stops on that tour is in Capernaum, where you get to see what is believed to be Peter's dwelling. You get to see where he lived with his mother-in-law and his wife and where Jesus came to do good works and preach. And if you've never been to Israel, I'll give you a spoiler alert, not to your surprise, it's mostly in ruins. It's an outline of bricks that kind of shows you where the building might have been. There are no beds, there's no decor, there's no white picket fence. It primarily serves now for God's people, as a testament to Peter's absence. He's not there. It was his temporary home. And so it is with all of your homes. If you ever see one of those signs on the telephone pole by your neighborhood that says estate sale, if you're like me, your first reaction is, I wonder if there's anything of value in there for me. But I'd like to give you a different perspective on the sign. If you ever see a estate sale, don't just think about some furniture you could buy. An estate sale is your future. There is an estate sale that waits every single one of your homes. It's an eventuality that is inevitable. Your current home, one day, will transfer ownership in a blink of an eye to someone that is not you. And they will auction your furniture, and they will take down your beautiful pictures without ceremony, and they will even cover up the paint that you just painted. As you mocked the last owner, they will mock you. This is a harsh reality 
that is actually a truth that sets you free. Your home is not your home. Your car is not your car. This church building is not your church building. I am not your forever pastor. As pilgrims and sojourners, we take one step back and we see the transient nature of everything and you say, what does this have to do with me being spoken evil against? It gives you a radical perspective of freedom because every word that is not true is a fleeting, temporary moment. Only the truth will prevail against you. And the more that you can relieve yourself from the burden, the desire to belong and grab root and have something that you'll never be moved from, the more you will relieve yourself from the burden of desiring to be accepted at the cost of wanting everyone to like you. Here's a way to think of it not just as homes, but as actual journey of life. A couple of years ago, I went to my high school reunion. Now, that is a lesson in how wrong we all are in all of our hyperactivity for the moment. I think back to high school and all of the things I worried about, about what people thought about me. My clothes weren't cool. I was too short. I would never get a girlfriend. I would never do anything with my life. Fast forward 20 years, I've proven some of those things false. Not all of them, unfortunately. And you get to see all of these classmates on the journey of life, and you realize that it would be silly to make the same slanderous claims that we used to when we were in high school. Why? Because we don't belong in high school anymore. I don't care what they think about me anymore. And if you could go and speak to your fourth grade self or your freshman year self or you from 10 years ago, you would preach evangelistically not to worry about what people are thinking about you anymore. And yet here you are today in need of that same reminder from the eternal perspective. Well, enter Peter. Peter says you're a pilgrim and you're a sojourner. The words that people speak against you are temporary and they will not ring true for eternity. How beautiful it is to be beloved by God as a sojourner in this world. So that is your identity. Your identity is the perspective of eternity to let you free yourself from the burden of the now, knowing that you're loved by God and you're already accepted regardless of the likes and the comments and the follows. And now Peter will say, with that in place, once you have your belief down, we can talk about your behavior. Once you have your doctrine, you can get to your duty. And so now the second fundamental is how do you live? Also, the word will come in to give us some refreshment on that as we consider our place from the church to the outside world. Look what Peter actually says to begin the strategy for living in this tension. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. His first moment of wisdom doesn't talk about the war that awaits you online with the non-believers and the atheists. He doesn't give you the strategy for apologetics to win the argument. He says, because you're loved and because you're a sojourner, remember that there's also a war in your own soul. 
The war is not just the outside world. There is a war inside of us. And that is something that God wants to begin with. We don't just point fingers and say, God, if you would just finally convert or, or, or condemn the, the non-believing world, this place would be great. We say, God, week by week and day by day, cleanse us. And this is a novel concept. This is for the note takers. When someone speaks evil against you, the word says, don't let them be right. Don't be evil. Abstain from fleshly lusts because fleshly lusts are actually proof that they were right. That you actually are an evildoer. Not in the way they were claiming, but in the way that God is cleansing us from that we all are tempted to fulfill their claims in. What are these fleshly, fleshly lusts? This is where we could spend an entire sermon series or book series or class understanding all of the ways that as believers we are still being cleansed. We did our church baptisms this summer. For all of you who got baptized then and for all of you who have ever been baptized, you know that those waters do not have magical power to make you free from the temptation of sin. We get out of the waters in the newness of life and in the battle of the flesh. The flesh desires that Peter is speaking about now have everything to do with how we're interacting with the outside world. Let's review what we already read about some of the desires that Peter was speaking in 1 Peter chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So it seems as though as Peter is actually talking about those fleshly lusts that stir up in us as outbursts of wrath to respond to people. They were so rude, so licensed to be rude. They spoke evil. Well, it takes one to know one. And Peter says, abstain. We've already done this once, but we can modernize this for our modern times. Here's the fleshly lusts in the digital age. I'll read them with you. The lust of Tinder, the gluttony of Yelp, the greed of LinkedIn, the slothfulness of Netflix, the wrath of Twitter, the envy of Facebook, and the pride of Instagram. Whatever your temptation is, there is an app for that. And some of you younger people are like, he didn't mention TikTok. We are off the hook. The bad news for you is that TikTok is actually all of them. <laughs> all into one. Of course, these platforms aren't inherently evil. They just allow us to show our true selves. They allow us to interact in, the wor in a way with the world that a, a give license to the fleshly lust. And Peter is saying, whether it's online, whether it's in the streets, whether it's the person next to you in your, in, in your neighborhood, or whether it's a person that you go to school or work with, abstain from fire with fire. And how we abstain from fleshly lust could also be a sermon series. Because it will be a sermon that you will need to have preached over you for the rest of your life. But we can review Peter and look for a couple different ways that he gives insight in this letter. First, remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So we get the lesson of children once again. 
Peter says, one of the ways you overcome the desire and the temptation of your sin nature to have an outburst in response is through obedience. Now that sounds almost too novel. But what Peter is saying is, as God shows you his way, as you learn the culture of heaven, obey the laws. And he gives the picture of children because all of you once were children and all of you have actually worked out some of the ways you've overcome bad behavior just by learning through the law or through obedience to things. I think about uh, my little son, Tommy. I will name him by name because I only have one son. (laughs) So I might as well name him. Uh, He used to be, in his baby stage, he was an incredible biter. Just anything he wanted, he'd go up to someone and he'd just bite you and then he'd release and he'd take it. Now, that is a strategy that worked in his tiny little world and it is allowed for a brief moment of your life. We probably have some former biters with us now. But he was ignorant. And as his father, I had to expose his ignorance through the law and say, you cannot bite until the point where he eventually had that little law put into his heart and his ignorance was silenced. And now we're working on fists and kicks. (laughs) And the same is true for believers. There was a time where once you were not a people of God and now you are. There was a time where you truly didn't know God's design and heaven's culture and now you do. And Peter's saying, so obey. There was a time where you didn't know the power of your tongue and the destructive nature of gossip, but now you do. So obey the command to use your tongue wisely. There was a time where you didn't know the the dangers of self-idolatry and self-centeredness and selfishness, but now you do. And obey the teachings of Christ that call you to live self-sacrificially. Obedience is actually one of the ways we combat our flesh all of the time. Another review that Peter has already given us some insight to for this answer of how do we abstain fleshly lusts is in the beginning of chapter 2 again. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may thereby grow. So again, this is not a random tradition that we're doing. Not only are you called to live the obedience unto Christ, but you're also called to know it and to grow in it, to replace your ignorance with wisdom, to go through a process by which you are continually allowing the light of God's way to shine on your life. And it says to grow in the nourishment of it, meaning the word of God preached over you right now is feeding your inner man or inner woman to build you up to fight the battle against your flesh. As you're nourished by the word of God, you are starving the sinful nature that you are being cleansed from. So you read the word, and you believe it, and you obey it. And then the the third way that Peter will remind us of the power of doing this is in the verse that we're studying. Verse 11 says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It is to acknowledge the power of sin's destructive course that it will have on your life and realize that it is not actually just a battle. It is not as easy as pouring alcohol down the drain once, saying sorry for being angry once, 
going to a few classes and moving on to the next sin. There is a war for your soul. And it will happen for the rest of your life and it will have a destructive path wherever it's allowed into your life. So you have the right perspective on what we're talking about. As we interact with the outside world and we have outbursts of wrath and anger and deceit and malice and evil speaking, there is a destructive nature to that for your own soul. It's hard to really understand the gravity of what Peter is saying because we don't live as people who understood the front line of war. He was writing to an audience who was living in the Roman Empire, still understood what it meant to battle. One of the reference points that was stirred in me as I, as I tried to understand the weight of this was September 11, 2001. If you were old enough to remember that day, you remember the gravity of war. The weight of something that happened to your country that caused you a sense of alarm, a sober mind, a desire to, to do something so it would never happen again. And one of the things that was put into place that is now just a practical lesson that we can see is that for anyone who ever wanted to fly again, there would be checkpoints. You can't just walk onto the airplane anymore because now we are treating this as an act of war. So we have to empty our pockets and we have to go through the process of getting anything dangerous out of the line of flight. And that is a flawed but decent picture of the art of war for your soul. There is a war that will surround you and it will come through the gates of your ears and the gates of your eyes and the way that things can get stuck in your mind. And we're being called to take the lustly flesh as serious as a checkpoint. Whatever could cause you to sin, get it out of your life. Magazines, computers, books, televisions, movies. The temptations of our life will war against our soul. And with those three things, you're beloved, you're a sojourner, and there is a battle within. With those three things delivered to the people of God, Peter will now focus on the outside. We're so tempted to get it all backwards. We want to look out, and maybe we'll look in. And then finally, we'll look at God. And yet, now Peter will say, in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says your response is to allow God to cleanse you from the inside out, and allow your actions to speak louder than accusations. Jesus says that his people will shine like light and they will live their lives in such a way that people will see their good works and glorify God in heaven. Now Peter is taking that idea and saying, do this in the real world. And if Peter is referencing the Sermon on the Mount, it must be pointed out that Jesus was not speaking of good works and honorable conduct in the context of religious duty. In fact, he actually said, for your religious duty, make sure no one sees you. For your, for your prayer, do that in your prayer closet. 
For your giving, don't let your left know what your, what your right is doing. But for the way you live your life to the outside world, your holiness is not a private matter. It is actually for the whole world. Your good conduct was to go an extra mile. Your good conduct was to turn the other cheek. Your good conduct was to offer forgiveness. And do it in a way that goes beyond your little religious context. Once again, we could spend hours trying to understand all of the ways that God has called every single one of you to live your life beyond the pews so that the outside world would be silenced in their accusation because of your action. But I can give you a preview to the coming weeks because Peter is going to spend time talking about the way that we interact with the world in the way that we have honorable conduct to governing officials. That'll be next week. How do we have honorable conduct to people that we work with and for, servants and masters? How do we have honorable conduct within the confines of our families when there's non-believers, spouses of non-believers? All of this is a reminder that God wants to use your life to reach people. Here's a quote that I found encouraging when I think about the way I'm living my life. The world takes its notions of God from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us and they only hear about Jesus. What does your life do to preach the gospel? When we talk about the gospel of Mark and Luke and John and Matthew, and when people read that, it can change their lives. It's blessed and encouraged so many of us. But what if before anyone reads the actual Bible, all they have is the gospel of you? They have the gospel of your life. They have the gospel of the way you're a dad. They have the gospel of the way you're a husband. They have the gospel of the way you're a neighbor, the way that you're a worker. Peter says you do that, and eventually you will silence their ignorance. And here's the good news, to consider this from the entire map that we've just looked at. We look back on the first century accusations, and we're like, clearly, that's silly. Even non-believers would agree that Christians don't eat bodies. Even non-believers would know that we're the most theist of them all. Because the reality is, in 2,000 years, as the people of God have obeyed this command to let their accusations, to let their actions be bigger than accusations, the church always prevails, whatever the trend against it is. And that is the gospel for you today. The accusations against you are laughable. The church is the body of Christ on earth. We are the ministers of reconciliation. We have the power to forgive people and to bring them to God and to offer hope and to be the example of a, a glorious future that awaits anyone who believes. This is the message that will prevail and the future generation will look back at the accusation against God's church and think, well, they were wrong about that. They may think of some new ones. But for our time, know that the truth will prevail. And as Peter 
begins to transition to the actual ways that he's going to, in the future weeks that we study, talk about honorable conduct in real life scenarios, he has one final statement for all of us to hold on to in our living hope. He says that by your good works they would observe and they would glorify God in the day of visitation. Because there is something that will transcend the temporal. There is coming a day where God will visit His people once and for all. And on that day, the Apostle Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Everyone will see the glory of God in an undeniable way that He is Lord. And there will be some on that day that may be glorifying Maybe bending their knees and worshiping God because they had a neighbor that looked just like you. It wasn't because of a sermon. It wasn't because of a podcast or a book. It was because in all of the chaos of life, in all of the heartbreak, in all of the various trials that await you and non-believers, there was one person that offered hope and guidance. And on that coming day, they may glorify God because of you. So live your life like that. And their words will fall by the wayside. 